This is the fourth day of this March-April 2019 seven-day session. And we'll take one more day of reading from the teachings of Japanese Zen master Banke. Our source is a book called Banke Zen, Translations from the Record of Banke, by Peter Haskell. Here he's talking about death. When it comes to the idea of being free in birth and death, people are apt to misunderstand. There's some who, beforehand, announce they're going to die in a certain number of days, while others go so far as to express their intention to die, say, next year, in such and such a month, and on such and such a day. When the time arrives, some of them, even though they're not ill, die just as they said, while others put it off for another day or a month and then pass away. A lot of people consider this being free in birth and death. But things of this sort, and we're to infer that there are some people, there were at least some people who can do that, who have that power, and I wouldn't be too surprised. But he said, things of this sort are only a result of the strength of people's ascetic practices, and often they haven't opened the eye of the way. The uh, Japanese word that you learn in the Three Pillars of Zen is bonpu zen. Bonpu zen is is, uh, developing uh, powers of concentration, like such as the psychic powers, that is, a Zen-practiced in order to somehow uh, develop the body-mind, somehow to bring forth uh, powers of the body-mind, even just just health, practicing zazen in order to uh, clear up ailments in the body or to, uh, to just settle down one's anxieties or... Mental, mental, emotional states of one kind or another, or even this, it extends, would extend to this. Um, it is not the highest aspiration. Whereas Banke here is talking about the really the, what the full promise of Zen practice is. And here he, here he says it. While they may know the time of their death, they haven't yet opened the eye of the way, and that's why I don't accept this kind of thing. The person of the unborn transcends birth and death. And this would uh, also be the same for any kind of psychic powers, uh, clairvoyance or other paranormal powers, really, in the end, what what do they amount to? There's no evidence that people with these kind of powers have the serenity at death uh, that comes from having realized the nature of life and death, their own nature. And he continues, Now, I'm sure you're all wondering just what it means to transcend birth and death. That which is unborn is imperishable, and since what doesn't perish doesn't die, it transcends birth and death. So what I call one who's free in birth and death is one who dies unconcerned with birth and death. What's more, The matter of birth and death is something that's with us all day long. It doesn't mean only once in a lifetime when we confront the moment of death itself. Let's just pause there and and, uh, look into that more. Uh, The matter of birth and death isn't something that's with it. It it, it is something that's with us all day long. 
It doesn't mean only once in a lifetime. So that's, of course, the conventional meaning of the word death. It's what happens to us after 70 or 80 or 90 or whatever years. But in, in Zen, that's just one uh, rather limited way of understanding death. Uh, a much more complete way to understand it is something that's happening all the time. This is probably easiest to understand when you consider uh, just consider just from a uh, biological point of view where the cells in our bodies are in flux. They're, they're constantly uh, passing away and new ones taking their place. We, each one of us, is a demonstration of dying and being reborn every day, every hour. Of course, we don't, we don't see this process because we don't have the, the uh, senses. Our senses are not that acute. Uh, they have to be uh, augmented by uh, instruments that can show that process. But we don't have to be completely in the dark as to our readiness for for death, for death at the end of our life, because we get an opportunity to, to see, we get opportunities all the time to see how we... Uh, encounter this continuous living and dying. We, we see it uh, in how we respond to criticism. When someone expresses, when someone finds fault with us for one reason or another, how do we handle that? Do we get defensive? Do we bristle and Defend, defend ourselves. What do we notice in the body as far as a reaction, a physical reaction, tension, heat? Because we're not fully ready yet to die with serenity. And also how we, how we, Respond to any kind of loss, um, uh, losing your job can be very much like death, a kind of death, because it can be such a blow to the one's self-image. And that's really what, what death, are, are, it's what we think of when we think of death as just uh, loss of self. That's no one. Not, no one of us knows what happens after death, but we associate it with the loss of self, the di- disappearance. Well, that happens in these painful encounters that we might have with uh, losing a job or, or failing a test of some kind, uh, being humiliated. Uh, even if not outwardly, but feeling humiliated in a meeting. Um, these are all perfect ways to assess our readiness, our, our readiness for death. And you can expand it even to any kind of uh, adverse circumstances or adversities. The Buddha talked about four kinds of um, suffering, or we could say loss of some kind. And these are the four not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, 
being separated from those you want to be with and having to be with those you don't want to be with. Who doesn't experience this every single day? It's all there. It's all laid out. We don't have to wonder whether we're ready to die with serenity, complete serenity. If we just pay attention to our reactions to these kinds of uh, pains, we'll get a pretty good idea. He goes on, one who's free in birth and death is one who always remains unconcerned with birth and death, knowing that so long as we're allowed to live, we live. And when the time comes to die, even if death comes right now, we just die, realizing that when we die isn't of great importance. Speaking of a a very advanced state, And Master Dogen said, if there is Buddha in life and death, there is no life and death. Buddha, meaning, and use Banke's words, the unborn, that which is beyond birth and death, beyond such dualisms of every kind, Buddha nature, It's always good, unless unless we're referring to the historical person, Shakyamuni Buddha. It's always good to, when you see the word Buddha, not get hooked into thinking it's talking about one person who lived in India 2,500 years ago. Think of it as Buddha nature. If there's Buddha nature in life and death, it's the, that is the, the understanding of the... Uh, the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unborn, the imperishable. If there's that, then there is no life and death. Another way to understand uh, uh, dying is, uh, or dying as a test, any of these kinds of dying is, the degree to which we are clinging. They say that there is no greater test of our clinging to life than when we are passing away. You see and you hear about people who are near death and the, as a, their relatives or family members are with them in, the, in a kind of a vigil that can go on for days or weeks when it seems like they're about to go. It sure seems that what keeps them from going, of just letting go, is this clinging to life. And it uh, seems to be, it can be all the more difficult uh, for them, for the dying, when someone close to them is at hand. I've heard so many stories of people who hang in there with their parent or sibling for long periods of time when they seem to be at the very last, uh, and uh, a, the the person that is the the bedridden person uh, waits until the daughter or son or other close person leaves the room and come back after all those days or weeks 
and the parent has died. Happened with my mother, uh, where uh, one of my sisters was with her for a long time and got up to go in and get a drink of water from the kitchen and came back and she was gone. We, all we have to look at is our own habit of clinging to our thoughts. It's all on display for us when we do zazen, especially in sashin. How we, how we insist on trafficking in our thoughts, not letting go of them, just to get a, a faint idea of what that kind of clinging must be when we see that we're about to leave this world. And then he just, Bonke just finishes by saying, talking and thinking about something like what hour of what day you're going to die is really narrow-minded, don't you think? He has this nice style where he some, he ends some of his talks by turning it around, don't you think? It reminds me of the British style of ending a statement by saying, isn't it? Here's a good one about uh, uh, he, where he, he drills down into the granular uh, nature of, of thoughts and delusions. He says that the reason people misunderstand the difference between thoughts and delusions is that everyone imagines thoughts all exist at the bottom and arise from there. But originally, there's no actual substance at the bottom from which thoughts arise. Instead, you retain the things you see and hear. It's called memory. And from time to time, in response to circumstances, the impressions created by these experiences, the memories, are reflected back to you in precise detail. So when they're reflected... Just let them be and refrain from attaching to them. Even if evil thoughts come up, just let them come up. Don't involve yourself with them and they can't help but stop. Isn't this just the same as if they didn't arise in the first place? That way there won't be any evil thoughts for you to drive out forcefully or any remorse about having had them. Yeah, how we complicate um, things. What what, what originates is just a, a thought that goes through the mind like a snowflake. There are times uh, we know that uh, snow has this sort of... Um, um, random quality to it. It doesn't seem to be coming down so much. It's just kind of swirling around uh, in the air. Uh, I think that's a better analogy for thoughts than uh, bubbling up. I, I myself use the, the term bubbling up. Things bubble up during Sashin. It doesn't matter so much the image as what we do once we've noticed the thoughts whether we can just leave them alone by going back to the practice or whether we then make something of them. Well, this is not so hard if the thoughts are just some little random thought. Uh, You hear a sound and a thought attaches to it. You wonder what kind of car that is or something. That's that's fairly easy to let go of and not let it drag you into uh, more thoughts. Uh, but when we have a thought about ourself or someone close to us, 
that's when we can start piling on more thoughts. He goes on, uh, mental impressions from the past are reflected, and you make the mistake of labeling as delusions things that aren't delusions at all. He's talking about these little thoughts. Delusions means the anguish of thought feeding on thought. I love that sentence. Delusion means, delusions means the anguish of thought feeding on thought. What foolishness it is to create the anguish of delusion by changing the precious Buddha mind, pondering over this and that, mulling over things of no worth. If there were anyone who actually succeeded at something by pondering it all the way through, it might be all right to do things that way. But I've never heard of anyone who, in the end, was able to accomplish anything like this. So pondering over things is useless, isn't it? It's utterly useless. Now, he, of course, he's not talking about just using the our, our thinking faculty to plan something that we need to uh, figure out something that we need to uh, solve a problem. But what he's talking about by pondering, it's a good word, pondering is just just aimlessly chewing and chewing and chewing on something uh, that really we it, it, it's not going to get us anywhere. And it just uh, obscures the luminous, bright quality of this essential nature of ours. And it can be so painful. We have the capacity to dwell in painful thoughts, too. It's, it's masochistic. Just reworking them and reworking them and reworking them. Why would we want to do that? This is not just a, a Zen perspective. St. Augustine said, an ill-regulated mind is its own punishment. Well, of course, why would we? Well, because it's a habit, a strong habit force of just doing this kind of churning and churning. But when we develop some proficiency at this practice, meaning when we, we, when we get some, some ability to manage our attention, where we're placing our attention, then we have a way out of that. I use that example in workshops, introductory workshops. Uh, when, when something happens to us that we regret, something painful, uh, now we have a choice to some extent. We have a choice of, of just going on, dwelling in thoughts about it, and regrets about it, or not. If, if it's something that can't be changed, let's say it's some, uh, some lapse of judgment. We did something, we made a bad investment, or we, uh, um, said, said, or did something that was, uh, you get say we get into an accident, a car accident, a fender bender. This is what Banke is talking about. What good does it do to ponder it and keep thinking about it? Well, this is just makes perfect rational sense to anyone. But but how do we follow through and not do that? Well, Bob Newhart says, just stop. Uh, Banke would probably agree. Just stop. Well,
Uh, he offers another example of the unborn function of the Buddha mind. When you're just there with no particular thought at all, and someone puts a flame to your fingertips, you give a start, and without thinking, automatically pull back your hand. This, too, is proof that the marvelously illuminating Buddha mind is unborn and perfectly manages everything. On the other hand, to think, that was a flame just now, and then realize, oh, it's hot, and get angry with the fellow who burned you, is to fall into the realm of secondary experience, deliberating after the fact. So these examples, earlier he loves the example of just uh, hearing without expecting it, hearing the uh, sound of a crow cawing uh, outside these things. is The point, of course, is that this mind of awareness, our, 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 our true mind, our Buddha mind, is always with us and able to respond as needed in so many circumstances. Or here's another one. Uh, something is sliding off a table. Uh, I've seen this happen where you set something down and there's a little bit of water or something at the bottom and it just can sometimes start sliding off the table. And just to reach out, catch it. No thought needed. And then this next one is related to that. Uh, I tell my students and those of you coming regularly here to the temple, be stupid. Because you've got the dynamic function of the marvelously illuminating Buddha mind. Even if you get rid of discriminative understanding, you won't be foolish. So here he's discriminating, I mean, uh, distinguishing between stupid and foolish. So all of you from here on, be stupid. Even if you're stupid, when you're hungry, you'll ask for something to eat. When you're thirsty, you'll ask for some tea. When it gets warm, you'll put on thin, light clothes. And when it's cold, you'll put on more clothes. As far as your activities of today are concerned, you're not lacking a thing. And then he says, with people who are clever, we could say who are... uh, intellectually clever. There are sure to be a great many shortcomings. To have transcended those clever people whom all the world holds in great esteem is what's meant by stupidity. There's really nothing wrong with being a blockhead. It does... This... this. Um, well, we could put as uh, this no-minded faculty of ours where we just are able to respond to things as needed without any intellection. It goes a long way. A lot of things in our lives don't require figuring things out. That is, cerebration. We just know how to respond. Of course, when you do need to use the discriminating mind for analyzing things, planning things. Well, we do. That's just the way it is. Um, He may feel more free in simplifying this because he's addressing monks uh, whose work is, a lot of it was just manual work. But there are plenty of, lots of time in our days and nights when this this uh, mind of non-thinking serves us just fine. Uh, Roshi Kapil used to say that in uh, when he was at the t- monastery in Japan, uh, he would sometimes hear the the head monk say. Uh, um, just be an idiot. Be, be a moo idiot. Simplify, simplify, simplify. At least while you're doing zazen. At least in session.
keep it simple. When I was at uh, Bukokuji with uh, the wonderful Tangan Roshi, uh, there were, every once in a while he would go through the zendo during seshin, and and his his uh, charming uh, limited English, uh, as he walked through through down the aisle, he would say, "Only doing, only doing." Not doing one thing with our mind somewhere else. Just the pure, simple doing. The movement. Washing your hands. And this is something that even uh, people who haven't the faintest idea of anything about Zen can know. People whose... uh, who are in body work or athletics. They're one of the top-ranked tennis players in the world, Kevin Anderson. Um, after he uh, won a huge uh, tournament championship in 2015, uh, he was asked, people flocked, the reporters flocked around him, and, and uh, he had upset a, a much higher-ranked player, uh, and uh, this is what he said. I said, I use the expression, dumb yourself down a little bit. When you're out there, meaning on the court, in competition, the less you can think, the better. Well, I can hear people saying, well, yeah, I don't spend a lot of time in athletic competitions. Uh, what about all the other times? Well, you just... You find that if you're if you're sitting uh, every day, the more the better. That everything becomes more fluid and simple, and direct and clean. He he presses this further. When people say that someone is a clever fellow, I ask to meet him, and when I do, and we have a chance to talk. It looks to me as if people in the world are praising an awful lot of foolishness. The fact is that those clever people acclaimed by the world are, from the start, deluded by their own cleverness. Uh, I think of uh, uh, Harada, um, Zogaku Roshi, Roshi Kapo's first teacher in Japan, who had been a a philosophy professor and uh, announced that philosophy is the study of human delusion. Because it's a study of concepts. And then he brings it home. He says, the true person's ideal is to show kindness to those who are foolish and help those who are evil. To be recognized as a good person by the people of the world is precisely what makes being born a human being worthwhile. Notice this, to help those who are evil. to have demanding jobs, and especially if, if, if we are driven to uh, achieve more and more and to be promoted, eh, one can lose sight of this, this simple wisdom. I think... Uh, uh, past a certain age, it becomes more and more clear and obvious to show kindness to those who are foolish and help those who are evil.
his little short one where a nun, a Buddhist nun, comes to him and says, both my parents are still living. How should I fulfill my filial duty toward them? You know, this is a huge thing in uh, East Asian countries, one's duty to one's parents. The master replied, there's no particular manner in which one must express filiality. Simply abiding in the Buddha mind you have from your parents innately, just as it is. This is the true practice of filiality. Failing to do this is what it means to be unfilial. That is betraying our debt to our parents. My early sashins, I was uh, working a lot without without meaning to. I was working a lot in my uh, very painful relationship with my mother, and uh, that some of that came bursting out in Doksan. And there was one point at which uh, I raised a similar question about how I could help her, and um, Roshi said, uh, "You know, just just being here." And deep Zazen, you are very much helping her. Well, I wanted to believe that. Um, I didn't completely, at that point, realize how true it was. It's not just with one's parents. To help anyone, there is no more profound way of helping than to be sitting in Zazen beyond thought. This has never been proven and never will be proven because it's beyond empiricism, but it is true. Your parents, your brother or sister, your children, you're very, very much helping them, absorbed in Zazen. You could even make the, make the case that it's the only true helping. The rest is just secondary, whatever we may do for them or bring them. Not that we have to choose one or the other. Here's a nice uh, analogy he makes. Uh, A layman asked, I don't doubt that originally deluded thoughts don't exist, but since the flow of my thoughts never stops for even a moment, it's impossible for me to realize the unborn. Impossible? The Master said, when you came into this world, there was only the unborn Buddha mind. As you grew, however, you picked up the ignorant attitudes you saw around you, so that as time passed, you got used to being deluded, and the deluded mind gained a free hand. Originally, in your innate self, thoughts don't exist. So in the mind that affirms and has faith in its own unborn Buddhahood, thoughts simply vanish. So this is the essential teaching of the Dharma and the essential experience of awakening is that thoughts, like everything else, have no abiding nature to them. They have no uh, substantiality to them. And here's his analogy. It's like one who's fond of wine but gets sick from it and has to stop drinking. If he finds himself in a situation where wine is served, 
thoughts of wanting to drink may arise, but since he doesn't drink, he neither gets sick nor drunk. He's a teetotaler, even while thoughts of drinking arise and ends up a healthy person. Delusory thoughts are like this too. When you simply let them arise or cease without either taking them up or rejecting them, then before you know it, they'll vanish in the mind of the unborn. So very clearly distinguishing between what might be uh, a temptation uh, and the refraining from the temptation. The thoughts that can be pretty tempting to get involved in and refraining from getting involved with them. If you, if you don't drink, then you, drinking is not going to be a problem for you. If you don't let yourself dwell in your thoughts, then thoughts aren't going to be a problem for you. Yes, we can all agree this is very obvious, clear, simple, uh, but it's profound, or and it's profound. The, the simplest things, the most profound things are the simplest. We just have to get this in our noggins that, that we can do this. Uh, it's just a moment-by-moment moment thing. When we think about it as something... This, this immense project we have. It's just thoughts. It's just a matter of doing it moment by moment, breath by breath, just doing it, doing it. <coughs> Only doing. And here's uh, another short one. Uh, or from a monk who wasn't listening. I find it impossible to suppress all my defilements and delusions. What can I do to suppress them? <laughs> I hope everyone could know the answer to that, more or less. The master replied, trying to suppress delusion is delusion too. Delusions have no original existence. They're only things you create yourself by indulging in discrimination. Don't make a problem out of your thoughts. They don't need to be a problem. Just leave them alone. Just leave them alone. Let them do their thing. You can coexist with your thoughts. Just fine. They may be flitting all over, snapping at you. Uh, no problem. You don't have to do anything about them. They'll subside if you leave them alone. Just dwell in the practice you're working on. Abide in non-abiding. Holding to nothing whatever but dwelling in prajna wisdom. Here he takes up the matter of sleeping. A layman asked, I admit that we see and hear with the unborn, but when we fall asleep, we're unaware even of another person right beside us. So at that time, we seem to lose the vital function of the unborn. The master said, what kind of loss is there? There's no loss at all. You've simply fallen asleep. Is a one of the most pernicious traps of Sashin is getting into uh, dramas about how much sleep you're getting, and they're all they're all clusters of thoughts. There are clusters of thoughts of shoulds and oughts and should haves and ought haves. I know this very well. My early years of Sashin's always begrudging myself any sleep at all and feeling guilty if I 
overslept a little bit when, you know, slept for four hours instead of three or whatever. It's just clogs up everything. There's no need. You, whatever has happened, again, as we said 10 minutes ago, let it go. What good does it do to ponder about how you blew it that night with your sleep? I hear this in Doksan sometimes, and I know for every time I hear, for every person who brings it into Doksan, there are six or eight or ten who are doing it in, in the Zendo without bringing it up. Okay, you overslept. Now, moo. Come to believe that uh, people, some people who do the most yaza, who get the least sleep, might, keyword might, might do better getting more sleep. I especially um, wonder about this after having read a, a book about all the marvelous um, benefits of sleep, which include not just making you uh, more rested, but the, the neurological benefits of sleep, including, this is the point, how what eludes us in our waking state can come together during sleep, connections, creative insights, or they, when we wake up, a new, fresh way of seeing something. It's a very, very sensitive issue because we don't want to waste time uh, sleeping when we don't need to. That's the whole key is when do we need to sleep? For some people, I think they should draw that line be a little more generous with sleep because it can leave them with a fresh take on practice and can, in some mysterious way that sleep functions, can bring greater clarity. But then the other danger is is just being lazy, and when you start feeling a little tired of uh, just diving under the covers, uh, it's not a great way to use sashin. So as always, it's just left to each person to sort this out. Um, But do appreciate that sleep can be an asset There's a, there's a line um, where it can really benefit your practice to not be too sleep-deprived. Then you look back. I looked at how little sleep I got in those early years, uh, flogging myself um, to stay up when I was nodding out. I was... Uh, so foggy and tired at night and making myself, driving myself to go on, remembering stories of the Japanese monasteries where uh, the worst thing you could ever do is is get sleep. Uh, Where uh, a beginner monk, a novice monk, in his first seven-day session was forbidden to sleep at all. Seven days and nights, no sleep. These stories, they get into you, and if you're already disposed to beating up on yourself, then... um, But here's the thing. I look back. uh, It's what I needed to do. I talked about this a couple days ago with Banke and all the... uh, how he... all the suffering he inflicted on himself. Can we say that... It was a mistake. 
He needed to do it. I needed to do that. And in his case, you can't argue with success. Our time is up now. We'll stop and recite the four vows. Okay.